It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, author Bill Bishop talks about trust, individualism, and American identity. I mean, this is the big democratic question. How do you run a democracy in a world where everyone gets to decide their own truth and no one trusts the institutions on which the country was founded? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Bill Bishop's 2009 book, The Big Sort, Why the Clustering of Like-Minded America is Tearing Us Apart, details how Americans are no longer moving to communities for economic reasons, but ideological ones. Over the past three decades, he says, people have been choosing neighborhoods compatible with their lifestyles and beliefs. The effect is that we're increasingly sorting ourselves into alarmingly homogenous communities. Bishop talks with former Republican Congressman Mickey Edwards about where we go from here. Our trust in civic, religious, and academic institutions is dipping, and our individualism and tribalism are on the rise. How does this impact our communities, our political system, and our everyday lives? Bill Bishop takes a few audience questions early in the discussion. Mickey Edwards begins the talk. Uh, This is a very special, I think, uh, conversation that we're going to have. This is not about Donald Trump. This is not about, this, this is about us. This is about us. This is about American people, you and I, uh, and what we have wrought, not what somebody else uh, has wrought and how we got here. So, I'm not going to uh, tell you a lot about Bill, but I will tell you that in his bio there is one title that he has that is missing, that they left out of his bio. That's Nostradamus. Uh, because, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm a politician. I served in Congress. I thought I knew politics. I thought I understand, understood the, the politics of the country, the people, their thoughts. Uh, and a number of years ago, right after Bill's book, The Big Sort, came out, uh, he and I were both speaking at the University of Texas. And we were uh, up in this big room on top of the University of Texas football stadium. And as he went on, I was sitting there and thinking, my God, I don't know anything. You know, that what I thought I knew about constituencies, about the people and what was on their minds, you know, really, really, whoa, I don't understand any of it. And I went back and I started looking at my own community and understanding a lot more. So that Bill Bishop saw things. He saw them coming. He saw that uh, what happened in this election, what's happened recently uh, in other ways, what was there. And, it, and, and we just didn't see it. Uh, so uh, in 2004, uh, as I understand it, Bill coined the term the big sword in 2008. Uh, he wrote his book, which if you have not read it, uh, you should, and, and tell you a little bit about, not, it's too late now to read it to see what's going to happen, but, but give you a sense of, of what did. Um, so Bill was a, a reporter, graduate of Duke, and he was a, re, a reporter working in Austin, Texas in 2008. The, the title of his book was The Big Sort, why the clustering, why is a big word, why the clustering of like-minded Americans is tearing us apart. And uh, so the theme of that is that the places where we live are increasingly 
I'm using quotes here, increasingly crowded with people who live, think, and vote as we do. I think most of us recognize now that that's the case. And so instead of, I'm taking a little bit about what you already had in your book, so that part of your talk today is, is off table, I'm already, I'm already doing it, uh, but that instead of migration patterns being based on economic opportunity as they traditionally had been, we were more and more finding ourselves in a country where people were moving to places where they could surround themselves with neighbors who would uh, be neighbors who would think like they do, uh, go to church where they go, uh, watch the TV they go to, be compatible with the lifestyles that they want to use, choosing to live among people like themselves. Uh, and, uh, and so we found that pockets of like-minded citizens that have become so, yeah, you, you can decide for yourself whether you're included in this, pockets of like-minded citizens that have become so ideologically inbred that we don't know, can't understand, and can barely conceive of those people who live just a few miles away from us. And then a little later, Richard Florida, who you've worked with at City Lab, uh, wrote that the big sort, just recently, is only getting bigger. And that it is now, he is saying that the big sort that Bill discovered and wrote about is what is driving our political polarization. So, uh, I, I want to throw, Bill, this is a lead up to the, what I want to ask you. In, uh, I think it was 2012, so somewhere in there, two well-known political scientists at Stanford uh, came out, they wrote a piece, uh, they're at Hoover, uh, Sam Allen and Mo Fiorina uh, came out and they wrote a piece that said basically that the big sort was a myth. You, not, they didn't quite say you made it up, but the, the, what you wrote was a myth. And it was based on three assumptions. The, the, you had based this on three assumptions. One was that neighborhoods are important centers of American life. Secondly, that people, you were assuming that people who live in neighborhoods talk to each other. And third, that politics is an important topic that they talk about. And so Fiorina and Allen wrote that Respected scholars, the, basically the academic community as a whole, uh, and they mentioned Bob Putnam in particular, who wrote Bowling Alone, don't believe it's true that the neighborhoods matter and that people talk to each other and that they talk about politics. We, we learned there. So what, what did they miss, Bill? What, what is it? What, what is your picture of the American community, the American neighborhood, uh, and what does that say to us about not, not this past election, but about where we're going and how well we're going to be able to retain an identity as a common people. So, um, I mean, there's all this new information about neighborhood effects on economy and on marriage and on from Raj Chetty to Robert Sampson, right, uh, uh, who wrote um, a big book about Chicago and, and where you grow up, you know, does affect uh, whether you get, get, you know, the odds that you get married uh, 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 later in life or how much money you make. Uh, it's interesting. I brought this up in a rural session. Poor people who grow up in rural communities are much more likely to earn more at age 26 than poor people that grow up in our sort of hipster central counties like uh, Travis in, in Austin. Um, 
So where you live does matter. But for the question of us, um, first, the, the sorting has continued on, and on through the last election, I think in 76, about a quarter of the people lived in a county where uh, the election was decided by more than 20 percentage points. Uh, it was up to 50% in 2012, and it was up to 60% in 2016. 80% of counties uh, were landslide, had that 20% difference in 2016. And so, but this is all part of this other sorting. Uh, Bob Cushing, who I worked with, uh, on this, we began looking at why some places were doing well economically and other places weren't. And what we could see is that places were diverging. And they're diverging on the number or the percentage of people with BA degrees, the suicide rates, anything you can measure, uh, business starts, uh, employment, uh, places are getting increasingly different from one another. Uh, after World War II until the mid-70s, early 80s, Places were getting more alike. Now they're getting less alike. And one of those factors is that political difference. So that, that places are. And we began to think about later. I don't think we really nailed why it was happening and what the cause of the sorting was. And so we began reading around. And Americans always like to think everything is about America, right? Uh, I mean. Our feeling was a lot of things were all tied together. The decline in trust was linked up with the sorting, which was linked up with the, our trouble with our politics. And we started reading these European sociologists, Ulrich Beck, uh, Zygmunt Bauman, Alain Ehrenberg, Anthony Giddens, uh, who write about individualization. And they're not talking about how the self-will of people to, to, to be individuals, what they're saying is that one of the products of modernity is that the structures that used to surround people and hold us up and, and give our lives meaning have collapsed. We have family, what does that mean now? What does community mean now? Uh, occupation, eh, you know, you go from one, to, one job to the next. Uh, religion, eh, you know, the church doesn't have the same. All the things that used to give uh, union membership, you know, that a membership of a class. Class is less of a marker in, uh, in politics. So all those things that gave us meaning have collapsed, and it has fallen, uh, fallen upon ourselves, each individual, to construct a meaning and construct an identity. And, um, and that has become our primary occupation, witness tweeting, right? Witness Facebook. We, we're constantly broadcasting to others who we are and where we are and what, what our lives are about. And what that has done has sort of changed. I mean, and there are a bunch of things driving this, right? Uh, people, as people get more educated, uh, they're less likely to believe in traditions. You know, the saying was that, you know, when a French farmer landed at the train station in Paris, he lost his religion. How, you know, how is it to believe, it's hard to believe in the one true God if you see around you all these people with all different gods. And, and uh, uh, wealth. Uh, Ron Englehart uh, shows pretty convincingly at the University of Michigan that as people grow richer, they're less likely to be concerned with issues of class, 
they're more likely to challenge authority, mistrust authority. Uh, they're more interested in individual rights than economic growth. Um, they're, um, education, class, the economy, the economy likes. Um, it does best in places where people have loose ties. Uh, the economy these days likes to have lots of ideas in permeable boundaries, you know, and so that ideas can quickly go from person to, to corporation. And, and so there are all these pressures that, and all these factors that, are, that broke down these structures that gave our lives meaning. And so we're left with everything working differently. One that is, and actually there's a, a good example of that in our politics. And it begins with uh, two ambitious men. One in the 1950s wanted to be president, wrote a book uh, that won a Pulitzer Prize, Profiles and Courage, right? And it was about an institution. And it was about how individuals within the Senate, John Kennedy wrote, or at least his name was on it, right? Uh, uh, about how within the, the confines of this institution, people could, could work their will as, as individuals. Well, a generation or two later, we have another young man wanted to become president and wrote dreams from my father, Barack Obama. And it was about the life story of, an, of a person born outside of any community who gradually through traveled the world to try to find his place eventually ended up in Chicago and, and, uh, and finding uh, the, the place that gave his life meaning. And, it, and actually we saw a, uh, an inter a quick description of this from a advertising group in Brooklyn, K-hole, which my nephews tell me is a, uh, a drug term. Uh, and they said that once upon a time, people were born within a community and had to find their individualism now people are born as individuals and have to find their community. And that was the difference between dreams from my father and, and profiles and courage. So it's changed. And that's what we look for now in politics is a life story. I mean, what we hear all through this conference are people's life stories as if they are uh, that we can follow. So memoirs become more interesting. This, we developed a whole bunch of then and nows. And, uh, yeah, I should put in there that if, if you go to uh, uh, any of the bookstores, including here in town, uh, the biggest section is biographies, you know, and autobiographies yeah. and uh, celebrities. Yeah. And, yeah. And because we're constantly trying to figure out our lives, so we look to other individual lives for guidance and modeling. And, right. and also, this is a, we used to believe third person accounts were more believable. Now, First, first, third person uh, sounds unbelievable. First person accounts are more believable than third, third person. First, third person sounds like some sort of cheat. And so even on, you know, on the front page of the New York Times in the last year, you see increasing uh, numbers of stories that are written in the first person because it's more believable to a people who live differently in the world than, uh, than they did a generation or two ago. Yes. You talked about people moving to places where they feel more comfortable. But if you look at a lot of those counties that have gone to um, landslide counties, a lot of them are rural counties where there aren't a lot of people moving in. 
you don't have people from the cities saying, I want to go live there because um, those people vote similarly to me. Right. Um, but so so what, what, it, what accounts for the, for the changes there if it's not sort of moving? Clearly, those counties switched. Their, their voting patterns switched. Um, uh, Bob, Bob did an interesting, I mean, people, two things happen when people move. They go someplace, but they also leave someplace. So uh, as certain people leave, um, and I've known a number of people in Texas, I can't stand to live here. I need to move to Portland, you know. Pick the hip city of your choice that's democratic, and, and off they go. But uh, you can see that people from Republican counties generally move to other Republican counties. There's, there's probably some effect that, that uh, being, in a, being in a strongly Republican or Democratic county, uh, if you're opposite the um, prevailing mood, you, are, you do a couple of things. You shut up. You know, you don't, or you don't vote, uh, or you move. You know, what is it? Voice exit, and 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 so, I think all those things, a lot of those things, are happening. Yes. So, what best predicted uh, Trump voting here and uh, Brexit voting in the UK and uh, rebelling against the government in the Ukraine um, has all well. been wealth inequality um, by county? But I take what you said about that, that part of the thing that may create the deferential is people moving out. But I do think inequality is something that's driving polarization. But I also totally agree with you that this assortment is happening. But from what you said in your introduction, it seems that mobility is actually a luxury. It is one of the things that the wealthy yeah. do. The point is uh, that sorting is a, is a sign that we're living in the world differently than we did before. And so let's get a couple of example. One example, Kennedy versus Obama. What, what, what did people want to hear? You know, they, they, they were writing to two different publics, and, that, and we changed from uh, a, a people that wanted to hear about how someone would work within an institution to uh, a, a story of self-discovery. Uh, another, and, and, and so policy changes, institutions change, everything changes. So we moved from a military draft to a volunteer army because, and this was, this wasn't a left-wing movement, this was Ayn Rand, right, who was one of the most, uh, uh, the strongest proponents of uh, uh, all-volunteer army because the state should not have any, left and right are complicit in all of this. The left wants a world where individuals have utter social freedom individually and the right wants a world where every individual is, uh, has total economic freedom. And uh, so we've, both parties, both sides, pick up this this individualization where everything, where every institution, every uh, party, uh, everything is is geared from the group uh, to the uh, to the individual. So we go from military draft to the um, all volunteer army. We go from voting one's interests or or uh, all politics is local to people voting one's identity. And that's one of the big changes is that, is that politics is now not about issues particularly. It's more about people asserting their identity. Um, we go from community police protection to stand your ground. Well, um, security becomes not something that is, uh, that is handled at the community level, but is handled at the individual level. So we put in a, you know, some of us put in alarms in in our houses, or, or uh, some of my neighbors uh, 
uh, pack heat because the laws have changed to allow people to, you know, that defending yourself is now, yes, your responsibility. Uh, this is one of the most interesting ones. When the Lens went to Middletown, Muncie, Indiana in the 1920s, they asked parents, what do you most want your children, out of your children? And the majority said, we want them to be obedient. And when they asked them about their grandparents, you know, a higher percentage, yes, they wanted our children to be obedient and to be uh, religious, to go to church. And when they, researchers went back in the 1970s and subsequent surveys, people wanted, they wanted their children to be independent. Um, in fact, we, we were in Germany and took a little picture of a little girl and she was wearing this t-shirt that said, break the rules. And I can guarantee you, my parents, my parents would not have bought me a t-shirt that said, break the rules. And in fact, I think there's a session here entitled Break the Rules, right? Because break the rules is the way you get ahead these days, not being, not being obedient. Also on the, on the Aspen Ideas Festival, we go from community events to event communities. Uh, community events have some uh, hold on people, that you, there's some continuing, um, and that you're part of the community, so you're at the event whether you choose to or not. We go to event communities, like this one, Burning Man, right, that, that are ephemeral, uh, that are by choice, uh, that serve us rather than us serving them. Um, marriage as commitment to marriage as personal fulfillment. I'll let you talk with that with your, your <laughs> friends, community events, to event communities. I mean, think of all the people who go to those, those Oprah, you know, be the life, be the way you want weekends and uh, philanthropy. You know, the United Way is no longer the, um, uh, the main philanthropic uh, um, arm in most communities. It's, uh, we, in, our, in our area, it's the MS-150. They had 15,000 people ride their bikes. You know, we want to participate in our philanthropy and we want to guide our philanthropy. We don't want to give it to a group of experts and, and allow them to, and I'm not saying all these are good or bad, it's just a switch in the way we're living in the world. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, what's driving our political polarization with journalist Bill Bishop and Aspen Institute Vice President Mickey Edwards. The Winter Olympics in South Korea are just around the corner. There's one small town in the U.S. that has produced more Olympians per capita than anywhere else in the country. Not only has Norwich produced or put one of its residents on every U.S. Winter Olympic team except for one since 1984, it has put two Summer Olympians on teams. New York Times writer Karen Krause talks about Norwich, Vermont in our episode, The Best Sports Town in America. Find it by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts. Now back to today's show. Here's Mickey Edwards. So, Bill, uh, dig in a little bit about how all of these things that you're saying undermine the, the faith people have in the institution. So the, the, the connection to the institution is weakening. And uh, how is that undermining the uh, ability of people today to retain uh, respect for all of these various institutions that 
you know, were, were our centerpiece well, for we don't, so many years. Well, we don't, that, that respect is gone and it ain't coming back. Uh, and because, what's the effect of that? The effect is, I mean, this is the big democratic question, is how do, how do you run a democracy in a world where everyone gets to decide their own truth uh, and, ever, and no, one, no one trusts the institutions on which the country was founded. And, and you know, we, the whole basis of, we came up with four different, the society is now based on reflexivity, which is, yeah, I get to decide what's true or not. Uh, we wonder where fake news came from. It came from us because we get to choose. You know, when people, when pollsters ask uh, people who they trust most, I trust my friends. I don't trust, I don't trust other people. Uh, flux. Everything has to be changing. Change is one of those. I, I want. I, I mean, choice is another thing that every institution or every every movement is based on. Got to have choice, and I got to have diversity. And uh, and all those are the product, not the cause of of a change in how people see themselves in the world. Well, does that then, then that brings to the, back around to where the federalism question is. So if more and more decisions are going to be made, uh, and I, I think it will be, at local levels, that, that mayors and council members, and, and uh, uh, we heard Josh Shapiro yesterday morning, state attorneys general, and I, are, are going to have more of say. Will that rebuild some trust when it's your neighbors, people closer to you who are making decisions, or, or is that going to have any effect? Well, don't people, people do trust their local governments more than they trust their, which is true. But what it, in fact, that's another example is, you know, uh, local, local groups um, rejecting state and federal laws. Uh, because, you know, so we're, you may have more trust in your local government, but trust overall becomes is less, and, and it, it creates this a country that is, and states that are unworkable. So the Texas legislature just negates any laws that are uh, uh, passed by Austin. Well, you just used a word that I hated to hear. I mean, unworkable. Well, if, 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 uh, you know, I, I'm sure that there's probably somebody, enough people in this room, there may be one person in here somewhere uh, who believes that, in fact, uh, things are now workable in government at some level. But, but if not, and that this picture you paint, uh, which I, to me, I called you Nostradamus. I mean, I think this is, you're quite correct and saw it before other people did. What, what's the way out of it? Or, or is our way of life just going to be, if we're separated out into uh, like-minded neighbors and people who all watch MSNBC or all watch Fox or whatever, um, I mean, are you predicting doom? What, what is, uh... Well, we can stumble along, but I mean, policy will end up in this, this Beck wrote, is that every social issue, uh, every social problem will be solved with, will have an individual solution. We'll look for ways to, uh, thus, I haven't read it, but Hillbilly Elegy, right? You know, we go, there have to be individual, solu individual solutions to all public problems. There are no, there are no group uh, solutions anymore. And, and so we'll, Things will change, and but the question is, can we cobble together institutions and and ways to work through a people who demand 
ultimate choice, who decide their own truth, uh, who expect everything to change, and have no roots in tradition uh, or faith or community. Wow. Uh, uh, I feel much better now. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so let, let, let me uh, ask you, uh, if we do not have trust, so, uh, you know, one of the things that when Bob Putnam wrote his book, Bowling Alone, uh, which uh, Fiorina and Alan used to kind of counter what you wrote, uh, one of the things that people forgot is that very soon after Bob Putnam wrote his book about Bowling Alone, there was all kind of pushback saying, no, you're, you're mistaking it. People are now going to soccer games. They're not, not baseball games, but they're going to soccer games. And that there is some kind of an alternative structure that is out there that uh, people are relying on. It's not the labor unions anymore, you said, because they're, they're disappear. Uh, is there something that you see that, that is any kind of a glue, any kind of a, of, uh, a binding uh, substance around which people can find their new uh, commonality? Well, they find their commonality within the, their ways of life and in the people they dislike. I mean, party becomes the, the way that, I mean, uh, disliking something is, has much more power than liking something. And, uh, and so politics serves that purpose of, they'll find, they'll find people around them that, who can help uh, create uh, their identity, which becomes their and incidentally, uh, Alain Ehrenberg wrote a great book, The Weariness of the Self. Uh, he's a French sociologist, and his contention is, and we see the rates of depression, right? The people can't, are skyrocketing. I was just at a talk to someone who worked at the University of Kentucky, and they're having to hire eight new uh, school psychologists just to handle the amount of depression and anxiety. Ehrenberg's contention is that is that we're not capable of doing that kind of self-construction every day, and we get tired, and that that and that is the the weariness of that of that necessity of of identity construction is what is at cause of uh, or at the root of the high rates of depression and anxiety and drug addiction. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to bring to, up another happy topic. Yeah, well, that, that's uh, it, there have been a lot of panels around here about this. That uh, uh, the side effects of loss of faith in so many different things has been not only you, know, you mentioned you know drug addiction, suicide rates, um, and and interestingly enough, I saw that some I don't know whether there's a correlation, but a lot of the areas that have the highest rate of opioid problems and, and all that are along the coasts and uh, you know the the uh, urban elites uh, in those, those states there's a lot more drug problem for example in uh, uh, in Massachusetts than there is in Oklahoma uh, and so I don't know whether that has something to do with uh, the individualization you know because a place like Oklahoma does tend to have more of a sense of community, perhaps, than, than people in some of the uh, bigger cities. Oh, and if you look at the, uh, there's a Stefan Getz at uh, Penn State has a social capital index. And if you look at, you just sort them, uh, the most social capital to the least, the least are the places where the economy is probably not doing it. They're rural, rural uh, uh, at each, as places get increasingly uh, less urban, 
the rates of social capital go up. So we've got this funny situation where the economy, people are being drawn to places where the economy does well, but the but community does less well. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. You can listen to our show in a growing number of places. The latest, Spotify. Listen to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, NPR One, and Sirius XM's Insight Channel. That's channel 121. Here's the rest of today's show, What's Driving Our Political Polarization? Moderator Mickey Edwards takes questions from the audience. Well, for, let, let's uh, go to questions. And, Hello? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. Um, I'm Elizabeth Sherman. I'm a, a professor of government at American U. Um, what you're saying seems to harken back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, the work of, of Emile Durkheim, talking about the collective consciousness and writing a book called The Division of Labor in Society, saying... Um, all of our societies are splitting apart. Uh, people, science is going to destroy belief in God. Religion is going to decline dramatically. I mean, predicting all these things, also predicting high suicide rates exactly. among uh, the irreligious. Yeah. So, you know, given the fact that in 1900 this was predicted, um, it, one could say, well, this has all been fulfilled, and that's what we're seeing today, and the society is breaking apart. There is no collective consciousness. Wouldn't you say that, uh, as he said, as Durkheim said, people are going to find their fulfillment and their community and their shared values in work? And... Uh, Probably here, that might be true. You know, well, I yeah, mean, let's, people. Let's see what he said. Okay, yeah, but yeah. people might say, "I'm an accountant. I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer. I share uh, my profession means so much, and that's my community." But among, as was mentioned before, with this high rate of of employment uh, degradation, and with people losing jobs, and with the changes in capitalism, what about the people that don't have fulfillment through work? Yeah, or the increasing percentage of, of people who are self are essentially self-employed. Yeah. And so, and excuse me, but all the Democrats who are, you know, on the boards of Uber and Airbnb and you know, a home away comes out of liberal Austin and and these places that, to my mind, are more like these, you know, the situation that chicken farmers find themselves in. You know, dependent upon. They're independent operators, dependent on having to use their own capital to do their work, but have no control over prices, or and are totally cut off from their others because they can, they have no standing within. They're competing actually with their fellow workers for for employment, and and the percentage I think it is going up a percent or two a year of people who are who are in that situation. So, yeah, that work. But all that stuff has been predicted. What, what uh, Beck would say is that those sorts of things have now been democratized. And so that we're all now where once elites had that anomie, um, now everyone is, feels that, feels that. All, everybody yeah. is in the same situation. Yeah. 
Bill and Mickey, this is great. My question is, um, so Mickey, to your point about workability, uh, I wonder if you could make the argument that things are actually working fine and this is what it looks like. So in other words, in terms of government, for instance, uh, if you got the votes, we'll do it your way. And if you don't, we're going to get gridlocked and that's how it's supposed to work, et cetera. And then it's kind of as an add-on. Where does compassion come into all of this? Like, could we argue that everybody's doing the best they can based on who they are, their important history, what they know? Can we give people some space here? Well, you know, for the, my, my first reaction to that is um, people talk about our democracy and is it working and all, but, but remember, we're a hybrid government. We're not a democracy. We're, we're, we're a republic and we're a democracy. In our form of government, we're a democracy uh, in the way we choose the people who manage that republic. Uh, and therefore, you know, at some point, if just having, you know, yes, the people can vote, they're going to get what they want, doesn't mean that they're going to follow the norms, the constitution, the things that make, make our republic work. So, you know, uh, I, I think workability is a, is a problem. Uh, yeah, gentleman back here. Is this a peacetime problem? Um, I, I was thinking about what the professor said about, I mean, even back in the late 1800s, 1900, um, that, that the, these, these shifts have, have been noticed. Um, but do, do you think that the, the, the common social fabric, the, 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 you know, the unity of, of cultural identity uh, comes about when the nation is facing severe crises, for example, World War One, World War Two, the Great Depression, the Cold War, and then since the end of the Cold War, uh, really the only event which has actually brought together any sort of sense of national unity was the 9/11 attacks. And after 9/11, people went back to church. Uh, levels of, if you look at the the trust data, there's a big spike right after 9. People trusted government more, and then right back to the. So yes, when people are confronted by a threat then you come back, and, and this Engelhart describes this um, exactly, that it's the, it's the lack, the, the feeling that you can exist on your own that makes you less likely to, to uh, join those community kind of institutions and have trust and authority. And yeah, so when we're threatened then, but the, the trend reverts once that threat is gone. It reverted pretty quickly, did it not? It yeah, 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 within, yeah. yes. Okay. So I have two short questions for you. And the first one is, are there any benefits, do you think, to being in more separate communities, even if there are definitely some disadvantages? And my second question is, how do we foster ideological diversity in our communities? With that, I mean, the advantages are clear. I mean, you know, uh, people can get married to who they want. You know, we don't have segregated or, well, legal, legally segregated uh, communities. They're, you know, individual freedom is enhanced, uh, but that comes with the cost then of. So diversity then, diversity then becomes this other um, thing that we, that we don't really, diversity is one of, the, one of the ultimate goods because diversity is great for the economy, but there's study after study after study after study showing that diversity is bad for community. Racial, religious, ideological diversity uh, in a place creates a place where people have less trust, they're less likely to vote, less likely to vote for school bonds. Uh, they're, with they, the people who study it call the community diversity paradox. How do, you, how do you, and so 
you know, if we, and that's one of the drivers that, is, that breaks down these old ways of that, that people used to support themselves. So diversity is one of the drivers, good for the economy, bad for community. Thank you. Um, that's a great segue to what I was thinking about, which is also sort of a follow-on to the way the community, the, the co country came together as a community after 9-11. The threat was to all of us, so we had something in common. And it seems like, you know, as we have moved away from um, prioritizing a sense of American us, um, and in the sort of thinking that we could be more global in our thinking that, you know, I'm a human first instead of an American first, we've actually become smaller in our thinking about identity and we start to think of ourselves as, I'm a this kind of ethnicity first, or I'm a this gender first, or I'm a this, you know, sexual orientation first. Um, and I'm wondering how we can expand our sense of identity, like what can each of us individually do in our own communities or in our children's schools, or what can we do in colleges to expand our sense of shared humanity um, in order to bridge some of those smaller identity divides? You know, it's, it's funny, we were talking with Janet and Kelly and, and people coming from a bunch of rural communities that are working on, and I suspect their politics are not <coughs> representative of the place that they live, and mine aren't, you know, I, I come from an 80% Trump county. And, uh, and the Trump stuff comes up, and, and uh, we, we were talking about it afterwards, and we were all saying, you know, we're busy working on stuff uh, in the community because there are problems that need to be solved, and we don't talk about this other crap. This is because we have this, and it reminded me of this, of the, uh, the robber's cave experiment in Oklahoma. This is in the 50s, I believe they took two Busloads of kids, exactly the same. Same IQ, race, everything. Put them in a Boy Scout camp in Oklahoma in two different places and just left them there for a little while. They eventually got to know each other, or know that they were around, and they immediately began to, they would raid one another and fight, and, and they called it, they developed different names and different identities, and the experiment got almost out of hand, and they, and they said, how can we bring these people together? Well, they plugged up the water supply. And they said, okay, you all need to work together to get the water supply. Or if you want to see a movie on Friday night, you're going to have to work together. So the, the and this goes back to your, if you have uh, something to work on outside your identities, then uh, those other, those problems begin to go away and you, and you concentrate on the work rather than yeah, something else. Gentlemen back here. I just wanted to maybe hear your take on this, uh, this uh, idea of this rising individualism. Uh, what does that mean to, um, you know, in the face of racism, uh, social economic status, where, you know, there's situations where there's always an imminent threat to these communities uh, uh, and which may bind them together, whereas this other, other way of going, this other individualism seems to be something where people can choose to because they have a certain status to do that. You know, and, and that I'm just kind of curious to see how, how that plays with you a little bit. And then the second piece of it is, you know, I remember the, at the outset, you know, Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook talked about, you know, he wasn't about building communities and that sort of thing. But now he's kind of reversed this idea that it is about building community. I mean, so what, how do you, what do you think about the, yeah. the, the reversal of that sort of thing um, versus social economic, but also with this technology, social media uh, phenomenon? Yeah, it goes back to K-holes. People are searching for that community. They're trying to find that 
community, but as, and they'll join as long as they don't have the ties that community demand, demands something of people, real communities do. They, they put limits on you. And uh, a social media community does not. It's a community of choice. And uh, uh, the, the two things on, you know, there was a, two, in, two interesting books. One is by Jennifer Silva, who was a student of Putnam's, and she interviewed a black and white working class kids. And uh, she asked them, just talking about their lives and their careers, and they had all adopted this individualization, my life, my problem. I've got to overcome the disadvantages that I have. No sense of group, of class. Uh, everything was on themselves. And, and Silva, it's a short book, it's fantastic. The second one is The Lost Promise of Civil Rights um, by, a, I think her last name is Golub. She's a professor at, at uh, UVA Law School. And her contention is that the civil rights movement from a legal perspective began with class issues. How are you treated at work? Can you get, you know, and that as uh, the legal movement was taken over by graduates of law school and uh, then issues became more of status rather than class issues. And, and that's, that's where we are now. We're more afraid of being dissed or insulted or and issues of class and of work and of power and all those things, eh, who cares? It's more about whether I, you know, I have my individual freedoms and... Yes, back here. I'm not totally sure what the question is. I'm just, I've been going to a lot of the artificial intelligence stuff and the genetic stuff over the last couple of weeks, or last week. And I just feel like this is so scary because it feels like there are these huge fundamental questions coming down the pike about talking about expanding our identity, what it means to be human. When we talk about engineering people and what have you. And I wonder if, I guess the question is, do we think we're particularly ill-equipped to deal with these things or could these things present the kind of threat we're talking about that could um, unify us in some way around big questions? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't know that at, at this point, it seems to me, I mean, this is your area of expertise, but it, it seems to me that things like you're talking about, these uh, technological advances and all, uh, are perhaps uh, not entirely perceived as threats. I personally think that they are going to be threats in a number of different ways, economically and, and other ways. But I don't know that people at this point are quite focused on that. I'll, I'll use my own CBS example. For a while, I stopped going to CBS. And the reason I stopped going was because they had started putting in all these convenience things. You know, you just check yourself out. I thought that was just cool as hell until I noticed the number of workers who were no right. longer in the building. Right. Uh, and so uh, I'm not sure everybody quite, when you talk about driverless cars, which means also driverless trucks and all, the, uh, I'm, I'm not sure people quite recognize what kind of a threat that's going to be. Um, hi, uh, my question is a little bit, um, I think, uh, so the statement you made is that diversity is bad for community, right? That some level of homogeneity in a community sort of builds cohesive bonds, right? And whether that's religious, homogeneity, class, whatever. Um, and I come back to your question. Either we are wildly isolated or we live in these diverse communities where, where community sort of feeling isn't in place. And I come back to the question, so then what do we do about it? 
right? There have always been people who have been outside of those particular groups. Um, and because we are creating more space where different kinds of people live together but don't feel super connected, doesn't mean that that's not something we can't figure out. And I continue to grapple with the question, like how do we create support and space for the diversity of perspective, thought, ideology? Yeah, that's a great question. I want to hear the answer too, but let me just quickly say that I, I think one of the points he's making is that as, the, uh, as we have created you know, the, the fraying of, of community, one of the things that has been missing is diversity of thought. We got, we got all other kinds of diversity. Uh, and we've got liberals living with liberals, conservatives living with conservatives, and, and increasingly intolerant of the other point of view. So, I mean, it's, you know, what do you think? I don't know. I just had my own. I mean, we moved to LaGrange. We moved from our Bernie-loving hipster neighborhood in the middle of Austin about three or four years ago to uh, a town of 4,800 in the prairie of central Texas. And my life is much more diverse there, I know more people of different races, ideologies, religions, economic class in a town of 4,800 than I did in my two million person, totally isolated. Other thing, Janet, did you want to get in? Janet Topolsky, I work with Mickey at the Aspen Institute. I, I, I keep thinking about something that I witnessed this year with Bob Putnam. So Robert Putnam, after Bowling Alone, most recently he wrote a book called Our Kids. And he did, if none of you have read that, you might want to go for that too, because he went back and did a study of the town in Ohio where he grew up, Port Clinton, and what was different in his high school graduating class and the most recent high school graduating class, and, and what, you know, what, or maybe not the most recent, but a recent one, and how more divided the community was. I mean, it really goes directly to the big sort how even within the small community, the neighborhoods are divided and this, that, and the other. And the point he makes is the difference is when he grew up, everyone in the community thought of a, every kid as our kids. And now today, when you say the term our kids, you're talking about your biological kids, right? And how that has behavior has changed. So I heard him speak in southwest Minnesota. I was on a, a panel at this conference too, to 500 people in southwest Minnesota who want to take on this challenge, right? So you ask, what can you do? They have read this book. The board of the local community foundation has decided to make a 10-year commitment to focus on the 8,000 kids who are in poverty and to figure out how they can make their future different. So a lot of the root of this is class more than anything else. And so... Someone in the audience raised their hands and said to Bob Putnam, well, you know, what, what's the first thing you would do? And I, this is going to sound like a crazy answer to you guys, but he said, Bob Putnam stood up there in his Bob putnam is Putnam... Yeah, yes, putnam right. Bob putnam And he's quite a character, so it's interesting. He said, I would get rid of pay-to-play, right? What is pay-to-play? In high school now... Extracurricular sports usually require fees. And he makes the point in his book, Our Kids, that um, one of the great equalizers of young people is sports. That if you're on a team, you're on a team, and no one on the team necessarily knows. When he grew up, no one on the team knew who was rich and who was poor. That's harder to hide now. But even so, when you're on the team, you're equalized, you get leadership positions, 
you, you have some authority, you have, I, I mean, there's a structure to it, but people get to learn and know each other. But if there's pay to play, none of the poor kids can be on the teams anymore. That's a good point, Jim. And he's, he's making the point that start with kids where they're at and, and make things as equal as you can at that level and make people cross boundaries at the youth level and, you know, it's a start. So it just, it just struck me that when he said that and the whole group went like this, I will have you know that that community foundation went out and actually has taken care of pay to play for the several counties that they cover. Huh. So everyone can play sports. Good story. So Bill, we got a couple of minutes left. What do you, wrap, wrap it up. What, what, what do we need to take away from this? Well, oh, that I think we need to, my sense is that we want to blame our problems on someone else. You know, Congress, gerrymandering, so, you know, they did it to us and they, and everything is them doing something to us and we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about how we live in this world and that, that we need to think about what's causing us to be so depressed and what's causing us to be so hateful to one another and what's cause, and that th those are fundamental and that those are in oppositions to the things that we want. We want ultimate freedom. We want to choose what is true. We want ultimate choice over, and you can't, my sense is you can't have both. At some point, you know, as Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody, right? And it, may, it doesn't, I'm not talking about that in religious terms, but yeah, you have to put yourself in with a group and, and submit to that group, and that's the lesson I think I learned from moving to LaGrange is that, it, is that my life is richer by giving up freedom and giving up uh, choices to be within this group than it was when I had ultimate choice and ultimate freedom in my, in my uh, hip neighborhood in Austin. Go ahead and end it. Thank you, Bill. Bill Bishop co-wrote the book, The Big Sort, Why the Clustering of Like-Minded America is Tearing Us Apart, with sociologist Robert Cushing. He's worked as a reporter and columnist at newspapers in Kentucky and Texas. He also helped found The Daily Yonder, a website covering rural America. Mickey Edwards is a vice president of the Aspen Institute and runs the Rodell Fellowships and Public Leadership Program. Edwards represented Oklahoma in Congress from 1977 to 1992, serving in the House Republican leadership. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.